0: Welcome back to the Noggin Notes Podcast. Thanks for joining us. I'm, as always, your host, Jake Wiskirchen, and today I'm really pleased to introduce one of my colleagues and uh, Zephyr Wellness employee, Steve Barsha. Hi, Steve.
1: Hello, Jake.
0: First, we want to acknowledge Zephyr Wellness as a sponsor. Uh, I do co-own the agency, and if you want, you can check out more at zephyrwellness.org. And I have to issue a disclaimer today. We're using a new microphone because there are two of us, and previously I just talked into a little lapel mic, and that seems to do the job, but... In testing, this one's got a little bit more white noise around it. So if it's a little echoey, uh, my apologies. We're still amateurs. And uh, if you want to kick down some money to buy us a new microphone so you can hear this a little bit more clearly, we'd appreciate it. And then we'll mention you or your company as a sponsor. We, uh, we're not ashamed to ask for, for help when we need it. So uh, Noggin Notes is both a podcast and an app. If you haven't downloaded the app and you're just listening to the podcast, we encourage you to do that. It's a great way to track your moods and your uh, thoughts and your feelings. On a basically a digital journal right there on your phone, and if you are listening to this on the app, thanks, we appreciate it. Keep listening and uh, maybe jump over to, excuse me, uh, iTunes for a rating and review. Uh, That helps drive listenership, or so they tell me. And of course, if more people listen to this, then uh, the more people get helped. And for now, it's you know it's free, and we don't plan on ever charging for it because that. That defeats the whole point of what we're doing. So today we're going to talk about addiction. Steve, you have some uh, addiction, drug and alcohol abuse, substance abuse credentials. And what are those credentials? I
1: am a marriage and family therapist and also a drug and alcohol counselor.
0: So in, in our state, the state of Nevada, a marriage and family therapist is somebody who can treat those drug and alcohol disorders, but you want to have some competence behind it. You don't want to just you know take your one class in grad school and think that you know what you're doing and your internship in clinical alcohol and drug counseling is uh almost complete now.
1: That yes, I'll be taking my very final test very soon.
0: Cool. And that's an oral exam?
1: Yeah, there was a written previously, passed the written and just the uh oral coming up very shortly.
0: And they're both kind of a pain, aren't they? You got to study for them. You got to know you got to know <laughs> what you're doing. Yes. Anybody who completes that, I commend. Um, I completed my internship, and I never went for the license because it's redundant, and I figured, hey, I got the 3,000 hours of competency. I could probably do this. Um, so my job now is to maintain my, uh, my knowledge, and you just attended something that maintains your knowledge. We call them uh, continuing education classes, and you attended one on the addiction aspect of pornography. Yeah, so, I,
1: think the, I think the course itself, I remember, was entitled Pornography Addiction.
0: Yeah, but before we get into that, I want to, I want to explore addiction as a, as a whole, and I want to let you do that because you're the expert in the room here. Um, talk a little bit about what addiction is with the, with the different forms that it takes and how they differ.
1: Well, addiction is interesting because we're learning a lot more about it as time goes on. For a long time, it's been and and still is very much difficult to understand. We see people doing things that very obviously don't benefit them, making choices that seem to harm their lives, harm the lives of people around them, and it's often frustrating to watch. And the history of addiction has been, um, we've, we've looked at it from so many different viewpoints that even in, in textbooks now when we read about it, there's different models of addiction. We have moral models, we have disease models, meaning that even professionals in different agencies, different areas look at addiction differently. Which I think speaks a lot to it kind of being mysterious in its nature. We don't, It's been difficult to understand. And I think a lot of that because it doesn't seem to make sense. I'm sure most people in their life have known someone who has struggled with addiction at some level. And it's frustrating to watch. It's difficult to understand. And probably a lot of people have been through it themselves. Um, I think now one thing in the field that we're understanding more and more is that it is very much something based in science it's very much a specific change in the brain we didn't know that 15 20 years ago Mm -hmm. there was a lot more mystery around it
0: we've got things like functional mris right fmri they're they're uh, almost live mappings of the brain activity as they go on and we can see where certain parts of the brain are live or dead or respond differently, uh, healthy versus unhealthy, somebody who's been addicted versus somebody who's clean, and, and that's what you're you're talking about, right? We have we have an ability to look into the organ itself and see the changes.
1: Yes, yes, we know exactly where addiction lives, and that is a part of the brain. It's interesting because addiction, when you're using a substance, the part of the brain that's infected or affected greatly is the frontal lobe, the decision-making part. So a mm-hmm. long time professionals thought addiction lived in the frontal lobe we know drugs and alcohol affect the frontal lobe but actually where addiction lives is a much older part of the brain the evolutionary part of the brain called the midbrain and what happens with someone with addiction is that over time through the dopamine spikes from whatever um chemical substance they're using or even possibly behavior that part of the brain is changed and it now stores use of that substance as something that is evolutionarily valuable which I is see. so which is why we'll see the addict in times of high stress go back to the substance because the brain is now under the impression that this is something you need to stay alive wow which explains so much about why we see people going back to this when we know that's not helpful because their actual brain is telling them, you need this to live.
0: And this seems to be regardless of substance. Uh, so it's not necessarily just alcohol or just methamphetamine or just heroin. It's it's uh, substances that, that the brain thinks it needs or that the brain thinks the body needs in order to survive. It'll go back to those. What kind of, um, I guess... Uh, what I'm trying to ask you is, what kind of duration are we talking about before that change takes root?
1: Ooh, that's You know, that's an interesting question, and I don't have a number for you.
0: That's fine. Um, it's another great area of research, it sounds like. Um, but I do know that you mentioned behaviors, too. So not just substances being ingested, but behaviors will also change that that area of the brain.
1: You know, behaviors are interesting. And there's, you know, one thing I took from the training was that recently regarding pornography addiction is that addiction is most greatly a phenomenon of substances. We know that there is one specific behavior through gambling that can mimic some of that, and it looks very closely. Mm. But we're learning more and more when we look at the real disease concept that addiction is mostly substance-based, that behavioral addictions are a little bit different. And I'll explain a little more about that. A lot of what um, was the focus... From the pornography addiction training that I went to was that generally when people talk about pornography addiction they're ashamed of it they don't don't like their pornography use but it's not functioning necessarily the way a drug or alcohol addiction would it's generally more a symptom of another disorder people are using the pornography as a way to cope with maybe depression anxiety PTSD, obsessive compulsive disorder, something else.
0: I've heard of that being an escape, too, from people who, we've, we've talked a lot on this podcast about emotions, right, and emotional intimacy, and uh, it, it's an escape to some artificial reality that allows them to plug in in a way that they can't or or aren't allowed to or, or choose not to in their actual reality. What's the truth to that?
1: Sure, I think I think escape is, is a, probably a pretty accurate way to describe it. Des, escape or distraction, you know, if I'm... Focused and ruminating on my compulsions, you know, a little pornography break might be a nice way to kind of cope with that. We mm-hmm. might call it a maladaptive coping skill.
0: Maladaptive, so, for those of you who don't know the lingo, is simply translated as unhealthy. It's not a, it's not a good way. Uh, adaptive would be healthy. Sure, and that's not necessarily
1: to say that all. Pornography use is maladaptive. It, mm-hmm. You know, it might not really be that bad for you at some levels. So, you know, personal choice, of course.
0: Right, and what we learn in school is. That it's not a problem until it's a problem, and that would be for the individual deciding. Now there are different ways of saying, you know, let's 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 talk to your friends and family about whether or not this is a problem because you may be in denial, but they can see right through it, and they say, you know, your your use of whatever or your behavior patterns are affecting me, uh, and and this relationship is important to me, so therefore it becomes a problem, and that's another way of evaluating whether or not it's an issue, uh, which which allows me to to segue into other types of behavior that may not be. Uh, socially unacceptable as pornography, as substance abuse, uh, as gambling even, something that pops into my head is uh, people who are addicted say to, uh, and I put air quotes around addicted because we're not really sure if we can call it that. Exactly. But something like softball league or bowling league or uh, hobbies, you know, the, the husband who uh, goes out and changes the, the, the engine on the on the classic car far too often because he just can't tolerate being around his family or whatever. That sounds addictive to me. Sounds maladaptive. What kind of what kind of encounters have you had in that realm?
1: Um, well, I think you know a professor I remember that we had through school, Dr. Chuck Hall, would say people move towards positive emotions, move away from negative emotions, and I think a lot of times those behaviors are simply trying to move away from negative emotions. You know, if and into
0: I'm, something they enjoy. Yeah, So yeah. there may be some environment in the house or in, within the family that uh, creates an unsafe place for uh, communication or, or opinions or something like that. Whether or not it's true, it's the perception of the person who's doing the escaping, right?
1: Sure. I mean, I think it, it you know it makes sense at some level. If I know when I talk to my wife about this or that, we're probably going to fight, going to probably bring up some sadness, some anger, some fear, some uncomfortable emotions. Mm-hmm. If I know when I work in my car, none of those negative things pop up and I'm kind of excited about getting that new piece working, probably going to bring up some joy, some satisfaction. Of course, there's going to be possibly that lingering problem that you and your wife haven't learned to work on in the past in some way.
0: Sure, and, and of course, as a uh, you know, family therapist, we would encourage couples counseling for that kind of thing. <laughs> Bring them in, and we can, we can help people you know, solve those problems. I want to get back to the addiction piece, though, uh, for, for a little bit, because that's, that's what you do. And I want to ask, when people first come into your office, and they sit down and they say, um, Steve, I'm, I, I know I have a problem. I'm struggling with uh, methamphetamine use. I've been clean for three months, but I've really been using it for about 12 years. How do you start that conversation with those folks?
1: Uh, I think for me personally, I want to find out what's important to that person and what they want in their life. So, And that ties into um, a theory called motivational interviewing that we use frequently in substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And the idea behind that is what's more important to you in your life than your substance use? And let's focus on that. Let's build the positives.
0: So, so it sounds like what you're trying to do is, is build some awareness that there is a choice involved, that they can uh, itemize these, these priorities, you know, what's important, you know, in one through ten or whatever. And, and then you can show them that, well, you say that job, family, home, payments on time are important to you. However, this, this thing is interrupting it. So it seems to me that, that although you state your priorities in a certain order, it seems to be inverted a little bit. And th- th- does, does that awareness help them realize? Because it seems like they would have known, uh, you know, as, as the guy playing devil's advocate here, it's, it seems like over 12 years the person would have known that already. Sure,
1: right. And I think one thing to keep in mind working with substances is oh, there's a lot of awareness. There's also a lot of shame. And yeah. I think more than anything, walking away from shame, learning how to look at things differently than I'm a bad person because I'm an addict is going to change. That addict has a, some awareness, you know. Not a, you're a little bit blinded when you're in it, but you probably know you hurt your kids. You probably know you hurt your wife, and you probably feel pretty bad about it.
0: Yeah.
1: And when you're living in that shame, it's going to be hard to make better choices. People who live in shame act out of shame. And I yes. Think the more you can, and I think that's what what really helps a lot now about the medical model, looking at the disease model of addiction, is that this doesn't mean you're a bad person. Your brain changed doesn't mean that you are, you know, necessarily, you know, a scumbag, all all the negative Mm -hmm. kind of stuff people tell themselves. And a a piece of, with the shame too, what happens with addiction often is we've got this ideal self, where we want to be, and then we've got our actual self, what we're engaging in. And those things don't match up well when you're in addiction. You know, if you, if you believe I'm a person who wants to be honest and you're stealing to feed your meth addiction, you're going to feel pretty incongruent and pretty bad about yourself.
0: Yeah, it sounds like a lot of what you'd be doing is um, just showing compassion and non-judgmentalism and saying, look, this is just where you are. There's there's no judgment here. And however you got here, let's try to find a way to undo it. Um, I want to touch a little bit on the, the neurology of this, because um, I think people, by and large, who don't understand the process of, of the brain will hear something like, your brain changed, and just leap to, oh my gosh, it's permanent. I can't do anything about it. But what we're learning in very recent research is something called neuroplasticity meaning the brain can flex and change so if it, if it, if you came out of the womb and it was intact and then over time it morphed it seems to to stand a reason that it could morph back through a series of you know healthy behaviors and patterns and i and i, I don't know if you've seen any new research but uh, several years ago i saw an article that said that um, synapses can can actually recreate if methamphetamine use is stopped when previously that was not the belief the belief was that brain is injured permanently and it can't regrow itself it turns out that's not quite true it will regrow in a different direction so you literally have to retrain your brain to go through different neural pathways but it is possible
1: yeah the the brain repairs greatly Without use, and that's not, we can see under scans, you know, the person who's been abstinent from substances 10 years, the brain looks a lot different than it did 10 years ago.
0: Mm-hmm. So that creates a great deal of hope, then. Yeah. And you're not permanently, uh, you know, screwed up or whatever just because you've been doing drugs for a long time. You can go back, you can get some rehabilitation.
1: Yeah, the one piece of permanency that we do talk about in substance abuse is abstinence, though. Because mm-hmm. we do know that the brain. When it makes that change in the midbrain, it does so through dopamine spikes through the use of that substance. Dopamine is about more about drug seeking than it is about drug liking. That's the mm-hmm. chemical that tells your brain you want this. Mm-hmm. So important when working with the addict early stages to recognize we gotta keep that stuff out because the longer we don't have those dopamine spikes, the easier it is gonna be to not crave as much, to not wanna use it, to activate that again.
0: So it sounds very similar to different types of physiological healing, where if you want to make a change in your body, you have to stop ingesting whatever it is that got you there in the first place. Whether it's cholesterol or um, you know salt for high blood pressure, you know these these substances, you have to you have to move away from them permanently, more or less, in order for the body to to restabilize and then start regrowing itself. Similar to the brain. Yes.
1: Yeah, so- so much of the brain, and very specifically within substance use, to help decrease the continued craving for it.
0: Ah, uh, yes. Okay. All right. Uh, a couple minutes left. I'm going to wrap up here. Um, thanks for coming in. I really appreciate it. And um, one thing I wanted to ask, too, before we, we part, is how what is one thing you could give the audience that might, uh, if you could wave a magic wand, one phrase or one you know little paragraph, What would you want them to take away from this? Because they're going to take away whatever they want to take away. But what would you want to impart as a clinician who who treats these folks and has all this information in his head?
1: Um, I think right now, just recognizing that addiction is much more so a medical problem than it is a moral problem.
0: Absolutely, yeah.
1: And a lot of times that's difficult for people because people are hurt by the actions of addicts around them. They're frustrated by the behavior of addicts.
0: Well, it's just so much easier to jump into judgment, right? Right. And
1: we do that as a culture. I mean, I think if there's anything as a mental health clinician I I would want to impart on the general public is to step away a little bit from judgment. I think that's the one thing our profession does that we don't really see anywhere else. And I think that's the one thing that makes our profession effective.
0: Yeah. And I would add to that, we'll we'll do a podcast down the road uh, dealing with how to select a, a a professional that fits your needs and who is going to be effective but one of those things is if you find yourself being judged by your clinician fire that person you pay them good money you can fire them too if they're not doing what you ask so if they're not being compassionate then please please go somewhere else where you can find the compassion that's one thing we hold very dear to us um, I hope you found this uh, podcast enlightening this is a, a new uh, format for us using this new uh, snowball microphone and I hope it wasn't too uh, distracting in the audio. Uh, For Steve Barsha and the entire Zephyr Wellness staff, I thank you for joining us. If you need some help, please don't hesitate to reach out. There's uh, therapistlocator.net, there's psychologytoday.com, and uh, in Europe, you can go to mind.org.uk or sane.org.uk. And uh, you can also check out zephyrwellness.org or go to the YouTube channel. We're always posting new content there. So... Thanks, buddy. Appreciate you doing this, and uh, now we get to go back and treat people.
1: Thanks for having me, Jake.
0: Have a great day, everybody, and I wish you good mental health.